When Anne met Charles, they were not supposed to fall in love. It was forbidden that they fall in love. Capulets and Montagues, Jets and Sharks, David Addison and Maddie Hayes on Moonlighting, Scully and Mulder, Anna Karenina, you know the story. The day they met, she was a nurse in the Texas prisons. He was a prisoner, support service inmate, first day on a new assignment, working in the infirmary. They're called SSIs, which is a janitor's service there. And there was four new ones came in that day, and I, they come bebopping down through the hall and, and started to the back of the infirmary, and I asked them just where they thought they were going. And it, <laughs> he said, honey, you did take my head off a time or two that day. Hmm. So, you know, that's, that was the first time I'd ever seen him. I mean, it was this the kind of thing where, where the first time you looked at him, you thought, huh, what no. is that? Is? <laughs> no. <laughs> She'd see him around, mopping, clearing out trash. And then, as always happens in these kinds of stories, fate threw them together. Together, in a situation where it was the two of them against the world. We worked together for a couple of months and then got into a situation um, that involved some real sticky stuff that I'd really rather not uh, get real specific about. But um, he told me some information that had taken about some stuff that had taken place while I was out of the infirmary one evening, which brought, um, by the time I got through facing off people, it... Uh, Brought a lot of heat on both of us. Um, and, and did the two of you actually blow the whistle on somebody in a way that, you know, people got disciplined and punished? Uh, officers, I mean, got disciplined and punished? Um, we blew the whistle, yes. The officer got a promotion instead of getting disciplined. They basically uh, totally isolated us both because I took the word of an inmate over that of an officer. Hmm. And they don't like that. And nobody talked to the two of you. <laughs> and so did that mean that you ended up having a lot of time alone with each other? Well, it ended up being we were the only two to talk to. You know, <laughs> we talked to each other. And I um, really got to know what kind of a person that he was. And that he will stand up for truth when no one, you know, when other people will kind of skirt around it, and but he will he will face what's coming down just so that the truth comes out at great personal risk to him. Still, his crime? In for murder. Uh, he killed the man that raped his niece, and uh, he's been given 25 years for that. It's drilled in our head all the time. Anyone that works there, it's drilled in your head that these people are out to con you. They're, they're going to pull something on you. They're going to get some um, blackmail you into doing something. Or, you know, this is this is the prison system's way of looking at things. Hmm. But not everyone that's inside the prison system is that way. And I, I, that was one of my major problems, is I could not understand and I could not treat them like they were animals. I, I just couldn't do it. Well, from WBEZ Chicago and Public Radio International, it's This American Life. I'm Ira Glass. Today on our program, for Valentine's Day, stories of forbidden love. Act one... Meet the ball and chain. What happens when you fall in love with somebody who you're supposed to treat like an animal? 
Act 2. Mucho corazón. What happens when you fall for somebody that your country, your entire country, does not want you to live with? Act 3. A story of impossible love to end all stories of impossible love. Or a thousand and one of them anyway. Stay with us. Act 1. Eat the ball and chain. When Ann Stegg started to fall for an inmate named Charles in the Texas prison system, she was up against odds as daunting as they ever get for two people. It was against the rules, possibly dangerous. Certainly it could put her job on the line. They were never alone. They could never say anything in front of other people. And he was, not to put too fine a point on this, a convicted murderer. You know, in any relationship, there's some moment where somebody says to the other person, you know, I'm having these feelings. When was that moment between the two of you, and, and where did it happen? Uh, in the infirmary, I had been putting um, my medications on the computer, you know, charting, mm-hmm. and he came in. We'd been talking quite a bit that day. Anyway, he came in and said something to me, and I turned around and looked at him, and I said, I love you. And he looked me right square in the eye, and he says, no, you don't. And I told him, I said, don't you ever, ever tell me I don't love you. I said, I didn't say I was in love with you. I said, I loved you. And it took him a while to accept that because he was of the opinion at that time that I don't think he, he didn't think he was worthy of being loved. And and about two days later, he came back and told me that he loved me too. I was sitting in the nurse's station with my head down charting when he walked in there. And and I uh, looked up and said, hi. And he looked at me and he said, hello. And I Went back to charting, and he said, I love you. I said, thank you. Wow. How very businesslike. Um, well, and under the circumstances, with other people all around, it kind of had to be. Yeah. How much time was it uh, between him saying that he loved you and you actually um, kissing? About a month. And, and if if you're you're willing, I mean, I don't mean to to, to pry too much if, if you don't want to talk about this. But what were the circumstances of you actually kissing the first time? Um, at five o'clock every day, we do we give the insulin to the diabetics. How romantic? <laughs> no, that's not romantic. Okay. Um, and someone had stuck their size fourteen foot right in the middle of the sheet on the gurney. And, I mean, there was a big footprint right there. And I hollered at him <laughs> and asked him to come change the sheet on the gurney. Yeah. And while he was changing the sheet on the gurney is when I took the opportunity to kiss him. And I was the one that instigated it. Was he surprised? Yes. He seemed very surprised. So how'd it go? Wonderful. Very, very, very sweet. I would love to be able to put my arms around him right now. It progressed from there. There was never any other, other than the hugs and the kisses, there was never any other sexual activity, period. Um, There just couldn't be. I mean, that's just absolutely the way it was. It, it just couldn't be. It sounds like you were in a situation where there's no possibility of privacy at all. Um, if we got a minute to you know, to talk uh, by ourselves, 
that was unusual. When was the next turning point in your feelings? When did you understand that things had, had gone to another level? Um, it was about the 1st of February. We were standing in the exam room. I don't, we was talking about something. He was cleaning and I was doing something else. And this blonde guard walked in who had never been in the infirmary unless she had to be, come in and ask for a cup of coffee. And but he always kept a big pot of coffee going in the back. And when he left the room with her to get her a cup of coffee, uh, I could have just easily pulled her head off and told God she died. And that's when I realized I was in way over my head and there was no denying the fact that I was in love with him. It had gotten to the point that I knew that we were, would eventually be discovered simply because I really had a problem staying away from him. And they, the security staff watches you like hawks, so, you know, it was inevitable. Yeah. Do you think it makes it more intense, um, the fact that your feelings were forbidden for each other? Oh, definitely. Uh, you can talk to any woman uh, or any inmate that has developed a relationship under the circumstances that ours was developed, and they will tell you beyond belief that the intensity of the relationship and the intensity of the feelings is far beyond anything that we've ever experienced before. I know several of the women that are married to inmates, and they'll tell you the same thing. Now, you've been married before, too. You? Yes, I was married to tw for 26 years. And, and, this, and this is more intense than, than... Oh, yes. I have discovered that I never knew what being in love was. Do, do you worry that, um, that your feelings are still idealized because you just haven't had the time to spend with each other alone? To a point, yes. Um, there's going to be a lot of adjustments to be done whenever we finally get to be together. And so what, what happened next? Um, on February the 23rd... Um, a guard came in. He and I were standing back by the refrigerator fussing. He was getting ready to go back to his cell, and it was a few minutes until I got off work. And we were talking and cutting up, and she reported that she had caught us kissing, and which she did not. Um, that don't mean I hadn't kissed him, but right. that, at that point she did not catch us kissing, okay? And a little while later, they after he went to his cell... Um, the lieutenant brought him back to the infirmary to do his Ph.D. physical, which was a pre-hearing detention physical, which is, means he's in big trouble. And uh, <clears throat> I asked them what they were bringing him down there for, and they said he was under investigation. And I did his physical. 
And I kept telling him, I'm sorry. I knew whenever she came in and looked at us the way she did that she was going to report us. And I kept telling him I was very sorry that the that it was coming down because I knew that it was really going to be bad on him. Wait a second. Let me be sure I've got this right. So he's about to get punished for... Um for kissing you and being close to you and the first part of the punishment is that he's sent to you to be physically examined yes i mean does this not strike you as being kind of an odd this thing that 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 he's about to be punished for essentially for the two of you touching and the first moment of the punishment is he's sent to you alone for you to like oh he wasn't alone the lieutenant was with him and snoring the whole time Oh, oh oh okay understood i was allowed to leave the unit that night then I was called back onto the unit about uh, 10 o'clock the next morning. And uh, I spent a couple of hours in interrogation with uh, the internal affairs people. What'd they ask and what'd you tell them? They, um, there was a lot of questions. They asked about the sexual activity, which there was none. They asked if I had been bringing contraband into him, which there was none. Uh, they wanted me to tell them every sordid detail, and I was not real cooperative in that area. Do they even ask you about your feelings for, for him in that situation? Yes, or, they did. They do. How exactly did they ask? Do they actually ask the question, do you love him? Yes. And did, did you admit to loving him? Yes. Yes. And um, then they insisted that I write um, my resignation. Did you get a chance to say goodbye to him? No. They gave him a year on medium custody, and um, they put him in the fields to work. Now, when they were talking to him and interrogating him, Internal Affairs had told him that after it was all over with and after everything calmed down, that he would be able to put me on his visiting list and I would be able to see him. Mm. Um, He put me on his visiting list in September, and my birthday's in October, so he wrote and told me that I could come see him, like, you know, the week after my birthday. When I went in to see him, they would not let me see him at all. Uh, one of the officers there recognized me and um, told me that I could not visit with him. They stopped him, gave him a major case, and um, he started his one year over again in medium custody. So he was actually on medium custody for 19 months. So you didn't even see him for a moment? No. Hmm. No, they never let him out of the building to come to the visitation area. What rule was he violating at that point? You were no longer a prison employee. One of the officers lied and said that they had given him a direct order for him not to put me on his visiting list. Uh, They wrote him a major case on disobeying a direct order. And uh, my husband had never gotten a case before, had never been in any problems, no disciplinary problems before. And um, it still hurts my pride. <laughs> the next letter that I got from him, of course, he was he was really upset because they had stopped the visit. And then in the very next letter, he told me he asked me to marry him. Um, 
he said he had wanted to do that at visitation, but since they are not going to let us to visit, that uh, he want, wanted me to marry him right then. And were you were you surprised? Um. Yes. Fact is, whenever I was reading the letter, I went to crying. Hmm. I was very, very happy at that point, and a girlfriend of mine who's already married to an inmate was there with me, and she kind of got upset because she thought there was something else desperately wrong. Hmm. And she, whenever I told her that he had asked me to marry him, she says, well, are you going on? I said, well, of course. <laughs> so... How does it work? Do you, do you, does he basically just sign something and you sign something and then you're married? No. He sent me what is called a proxy paper out um, saying that he wants, that he intentionally asked me to marry him, that he wants to marry me. And there's some other stuff on it. And then I have to take that and his identification papers and um, obtain the marriage license. Mm-hmm. And we got married. You know that we got married right here on the radio station. So that my, and my deal about doing it that way is I wanted my husband present at our wedding, and that was the only way that it, that that was going to happen. So then the marriage takes place on the prison show on KPFT in Houston, and the host of the show, Ray Hill, stands in as proxy for Charles, who's still in a cell somewhere. My name is Elmo Johnson. I pastor Rose of Sharon Baptist Church. And I am glad to be on this program to do this wedding. I told Sister Ann that this is the right thing to do. It was fantastic. Um, At that point in my life, you could not have told me that this was not the the most beautiful cathedral in, in the city of Houston. Well, now let us start the ceremony. Brother Staggs, this is for you. Wilt thou have this woman to thy wedded wife to live together after God's holy ordinance in the holiest state of matrimony? Wilt thou love her, comfort her, honor her, and keep her in sickness and in health? So as long as ye both shall live? For Charles, by proxy, I do. Amen. And, and what did you hear from your husband? He, he wrote you and told you that, that he heard the wedding show. Oh, yes. What did he say about it? He repeated his vows uh, right along with Ray. And, um, that's, what, that's what he did when he was listening. Yes. Uh, and um, he, was, he was as thrilled with it as I was. Sister Anne? Wilt thou have this man to thy wedded husband in the holy estate of matrimony, so as long as ye both shall live? I do. Amen. We will ask my brother to place this ring on Sister Anne's hand, and my brother, you repeat this. Okay. Uh, As a pledge. As a pledge. And in token of these vows, and in token of these vows, between us made, between us made. It's such a strange thing to listen to, him taking the vow in proxy. It was. Yeah. Amen. 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 
those whom God have joined together, let no man put asunder. Let us pray. It's also strange to hear a wedding ceremony where, where, where there's nobody there to kiss at the end. <laughs> that part kind of got me, but I'm going to make up for it when he comes home. <laughs> I promise you. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just have a, a message for Charles. Sweetheart, I love you very much. I can't promise you that I'll be around for the rest of your life, but I can promise you that I will love you for the rest of mine. And I, I just thank God that he brought us together. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Are, are you worried that it's going to be different when he's out and when you actually get a chance to, to be together? Sometimes. Um, you know, that, you know, the, the kind of the fear of the unknown. But I know that our love will overcome all of it. It's so strange. It's a fear of the unknown with somebody who now you've been married to for quite a while. Yeah, we've been married a year now. That's right. You've had an anniversary. The 5th of December, we were married one year. Hmm. And uh, that's, that's been one of the happiest years of my life. Even though they're married, Anne and Charles are still not allowed to see each other or speak on the telephone because he's not been allowed to put her still on his official visitors list. At the time of our interview, he still had to serve between one and five years of his sentence. This world divides us from two different sides But this wall's not real How can it be real? It's only made of concrete and barbed wire Concrete and barbed wire Concrete and barbed wire It's only made of concrete and barbed wire Coming up are the stories to hopefully break your heart for this Valentine's Day in a minute from Public Radio International when our program continues. This American Life, I'm Ira Glass. Each week on our program, of course, we choose a theme, 
invite a variety of writers and performers to tackle that theme. Today's program for Valentine's Day, Impossible Loves, stories of people kept apart who think that they should be together. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Mucho Corazon. In any love story, there always has to be some thing, some moment, some device to bring the two people together. And this next story begins with a man in Amsterdam, Leon Perle, and a woman in Cuba named Lady Sosa. And what brings them together from such different worlds is an instrument, a musical instrument. That's all it takes, my friend. The instrument in this particular case is a street organ, an antique street organ, big and made of wood, doesn't have a keyboard or anything. You crank a handle and it works like a player piano, blowing air through holes in these long cardboard sheets. Leon has a small workshop in Amsterdam where he restores these. It's how he makes a living. It has to be punched with holes in a certain uh, pattern. When a hole in the book passes over one of the keys, the key will jump up in the hole, and the note in the organ, which is connected with this particular key, will start to sound, and then the pipes will start to speak. Okay, let's start the organ. In Europe today, these hand-cranked organs are ancient history. But as it turns out, a century ago, these European machines crossed the Atlantic, and these days, in Cuba, street organ factory is still in operation, a factory caught in a bubble in time, still turning out these instruments. Naturally, Leon had to go see it for himself three years ago. standing at Guadalavaca Beach, white sands, uh, blue sea, blue sky, people in uh, swimming suits, bikinis, yeah, it's very nice. And there is a big open-air tent, and there was an organ with a battery of percussions next to it, Five people playing conga, bongo, timbales. It was so impressed by it because it was just like a real orchestra which was playing. It was marvelous. Well, my uncle, the one who works in the organ factory, told me that there was a crew from Holland who was going to be at the factory. They were interested in organs and they were going to have a party for those persons. He invited me to go there, but I was a little afraid. I didn't dare to talk to any foreigner. And then I think he said I could help translating. He insisted, and I didn't want to be unpolite. And I went with him to the factory. (laughs) 
I am sitting on a table with my uncle, having fun, drinking. And then all of a sudden I see that big man, white skin, ah, that look in his face like a child. I thought my heart starts to beat faster. There came a man towards me. He tried to start a conversation, but uh, he found out that my Spanish was just as good as his English. He asked me to wait, and he came back with a young lady with sunglasses on, and it came out that she was his niece. I took my glasses up. I'm looking into his eyes. Something was happening in him. It's the same that it's happening inside me. I could see it in his eyes. From the first moment she took off her glasses, I felt like coming home. Everything fell in its place. My soul was complete. It was just love at first sight. I just knew I was in love. <laughs> we were talking, it was so nice talking, it was like if I had known him my whole life. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> I was forced to leave there because we had to be on time at the airport. So I tried to extend the time of leaving as long as possible, but they were calling me, come on, Pauli, we have to go, the airplane is waiting, and yeah, 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 it's okay, I'm coming. Five minutes later, Pauli, come on now, we have to go. I saw the car leaving and he was looking back and saying, goodbye. I hoped she would write me, but I, but it was still unexpected, and I was happy about it because I hoped it was not just uh, something which lasted one day. Uh, at least not for my feelings. Uh, I was sure about my case, but of course you never can look into the soul uh, of another person. Cuba, August 31st, 1995. Dear Perle, first of all, my most sincere greetings for you and my wishes of prosperity. For beginning this letter, I will tell you that I have missed you as if I would have met you since my childhood. Referring to me, I'm 21 years old. I study at the training teacher's college, so I will be a teacher soon. I enjoy dancing, reading, having new friends, traveling here in Cuba. It will be very nice to hear about you and your country. I know that in spite of being a small country, it's nice. Besides that, there is produced a delicious butter. My friend, you are not going to believe that I keep the postcard you gave me in a place where I can take a glance at it every time. It really brings good memories. Take care of yourself and write soon. Kisses sincerely, miladies. So... <laughs> I hope for it and, well, 
it's, it's something which you can touch, you can read it again, and that was one of the best moments in my life. Dear Minadis, thanks for the nice letter. I received your letter the 10th of October. There is something on its way for you. Hope you like it. Love and kisses, Leah. And when he said there is something on its way for you, he meant mucho corazón. This is a music book he arranged with love for me. And the first page, you can see how he dedicated wrote four Minadis from Leon with love. It was in September 95, Amsterdam. The rest is just a piece of cardboard full of holes. <laughs> he can read it, I can't. And I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> But I don't have an organ. I have to go to the factory. Uh, this is the tune. Uh -huh. are the words to mucho corazón yo para querer no necesito una razón me sobra mucho pero mucho corazón I don't need a reason to love you because my heart is so big Pumpkin, September 23, 1995 Dear Leon It was so nice to learn that you have not forgotten me. In fact, I was afraid about it. Amsterdam, 22 September 1995. Dear Minadis, before opening your letter, I had to calm down myself because my heart was beating like crazy. And as I read it, it gave me a very warm and good feeling inside. To be sincere, I have read it more than six times today. And now I decided to write back to you. Believing that you think of me too was one of the best things that could have happened to me. Dear, dear Miralis, would you believe me as I told you that every night before I go to sleep and in the mornings when I uprise I kiss your name on the letter? So, you have to write back very soon because it's very not very rapidly. Can you imagine how I would feel if you came here again? Please, if possible, do it as soon as you can. It'll be great. Kisses, my ladies. Thousand kisses. The second time I went to Olguin was December 1995. Uh, I was scared because I didn't know what to expect from a man who lives in a developed country. I didn't know what he could expect from a girl from a small city in a poor country. Hmm? I was really nervous. We didn't know anything about each other. It was just some letters. And Sounds stupid, perhaps, but I was really nervous uh, to meet her again. I went to the airport. <laughs> I saw him. I walked towards them. And 
me like this. She laid her hand on the window. And I put my hand also against the window. And they were laughing because I have quite big hands. And her hands are rather small. It, it looked like as if there was a baby hand laying in my hand. <laughs> He was taken. <laughs> oh, his body was taken. I could feel it when he took me in his arms. Well, I tried to, to give her a kiss in the taxi, but even that didn't work. <laughs> she, she was just like a, a shy bird. <laughs> <laughs> I was voiceless. Huh? I couldn't say a word. He tried, but he was also nervous. They took me to my house, and I told my mother, "Oh, mama, I'm, I'm dying. I'm, I don't know what's happening." It was something completely new. What I was feeling since I met him, I couldn't explain it. I couldn't sleep that night, and I was afraid also because many girls were going out with foreigners for money. That was not my case. But I was afraid he and the rest of the people could think that. At one particular night we went out together uh, having some drinks at some bars. We were going hand by hand talking we had had a nice night. There was a couple behind us. There was a young man with a girl. He said, Tu fucky fucky, conmigo yo compro. It's a, if you have sex with him, he will buy. I got quite angry about it and I wanted to go after them. But Miladis was keeping me from doing that. But, uh... It's a problem of policy, eh? country. Every person thinks when they see a girl with a foreigner, she's a prostitute. The effect of the United States embargo in Cuba on people's daily life, it's hard at the moment. It's very hard. Of course, income is very low and sometimes people don't have to eat for one or more days. Girls, young girls, there are many who already have kids and they don't have anything to give them for dinner. They use their body to earn money. At the university, when I started my relation with Leon, everybody knew about it. My classmates were saying that I shouldn't keep that relation because people were saying that I was a prostitute. Just because I had a relation with a foreigner, and then they changed towards me. It was like if I became someone else. Hmm? It was like if I was betraying my country. I stayed there till the 29th of December. I was there two weeks. I still have the flight ticket. And as the plane left, I had problems to keep my eyes dry, so... 
These are the words to the son, don't leave me alone again. If you knew how I suffer when you go away from me, if you knew how I only live thinking of you, you'd come back to me, my dear love, mi amor querido. At that time there was no light, it was, it was very... It was a very dark period of my life and I couldn't stand to my promises that I would be there on February. Then I extended the promise till, uh, I think, May. And every time, yeah, I will be there, but every time I had the excuse again because income was not that way that I could live just like that. Most tourists who go to Cuba are quite well to do or have steady jobs with a steady income. And it's hard to explain that you can have uh, many troubles. You have to take care about your company to save it from going under. Incomes were quite low, but I didn't know how to explain that to her and I felt actually ashamed about it. I thought many things. I thought maybe he was just a tourist who came here to have fun. Huh? I regret what I thought, but I thought that I didn't have any any idea about his life or anything. What I had in mind was an European saying that he couldn't come for me. Huh? They didn't have that kind of problems. For me it was another, like another world. Huh? And I thought perhaps I'm not what he needs. But at a certain moment I felt so miserable and I didn't know what to find, uh, what to write down anymore in my letters, uh, excusing myself about not being able to come over to Cuba and to be with her. Uh, I was so depressed and so... Yeah. I don't know if, if it's self-pitying or whatever, but I wasn't able to cope completely with the situation and I didn't want to tell her about that because I didn't want to make uh, a bad impression and I felt so miserable that uh, stupidly enough I didn't write her for about three months. I I said my house I don't want to to listen to his name again. I don't want anything that has to do with him. I'm too young to suffer this way. I want to forget him. December 19th, 1996. Dear Leon, hearing from you was a big surprise for me. To tell you the truth, I thought you'd never write again. Indeed, there have been no change in my feelings, although I had decided not to write to you again and to forget about our relation because I have already cried too much because you do not write. I too have tried not to think too much of you. But I failed because my heart was stronger and words right over my soul. 
Do you think you are the only one who have problems? I have people saying whatever they want about me. I have even to stand them saying that I'm a stupid bitch because I still think of you. I have not been able to sleep yet because of a painful guilty conscience or a terrible time you have had because of me. Remember that love is like a plant that needs to be watered every day. Lots of luck and happiness and I suggest you to cheer up. This is not the end of life. My ladies. If you think of coming before April, let me know it beforehand. Yes, my dearest, dearest piece of gold. It's so sweet. <laughs> I miss so much your mouth, uh, your words, your kisses, <laughs> your big hands, and in fact, I miss you all. It's crazy. <laughs> Even rolled from the plane. Honey, you can tell to your mother that I'm loving you more than before. I'll kiss you in exactly three hours. I love you forever. I already decided to ask Miladis to become my wife the first time I saw her, but I didn't do so until I thought time was right for it. We were walking around the city. It was afternoon. We decided to sit down in Parque San Jose. We were drinking Bavaria, a Dutch beer. And we were just talking. At a certain moment I said to her, what would you think about the idea to be my wife? And she said, of course. I want to marry you. And I asked him, can you say it again? Can you ask again? And so I repeated my question. I said, do you want to become my wife and live with me? After she got back her breath, she said yes and started crying. <laughs> so I had to wait again for the rest of the answer, but I can tell that uh, it was very encouraging uh, what happened. Uh, we kissed. <laughs> I was living in a, in a cloud. Huh? We were both together, living in a cloud. That is impossible. Holland is not an immigration country. I invited her to come here in March last year. That is impossible. 70%. If they don't have enough income. The request was denied by the authorities. With the Cuban government, it's no problem. The, uh, she has the permissions which she needs to leave the country, but here in Holland, in fact in Europe, uh, it's getting harder and harder every day to have permits for strangers who want to come in to the fortress of Europe. My name is Joke Zuidwijk. I am second secretary in the Netherlands Embassy here in Havana, Cuba. I'm Nana Haspels and I'm working at the Dutch Immigration Board. Yeah, well, in the Netherlands we have a restrictive admittance policy because we are just a small country and we don't have a lot of space and uh, not enough jobs. And that's why we are carrying out a restrictive policy. 
So we just look at the rules and whether they are in love <laughs> is not really a criterion. Anyway, you can invite a Cuban person to the Netherlands if you comply with the requirements of the Dutch authorities. It only costs you a lot of money. problem which I have uh, towards the authorities is that I can't show them on paper that I have a basic income. When you are in love, you don't think about politics. Eh? You think uh, just like humans, without any borders, without authorities, because actually every political system means a prison for people. In Cuba, she had a lot of problems because she couldn't get any job. And well, she has been feeling quite miserable. Here, there are rules to work in certain places. You cannot have any kind of relation with foreigners. I would like to work at the airport, for example, guiding foreigners. Yeah, that's something I would like to do. And I could do it. I have many classmates who have gone to the airport to work, and they are there. But if they find out I, I am with a foreigner, I cannot be there. It's as if we become something dangerous. This was a present from, from him. He brought it in December when he came. It's a music box with the shape of an organ. It's a nice present. I give it with love. And the tune, it's a tulips from Amsterdam. him. He's everything to me. And I know he loves me. Yeah? <laughs> I miss him a lot. Every day, every minute, every second. <laughs> and I will be patient now. We will wait. And we will be together. I hope it's soon. Oh, no. 
Act 3. Who deserves what? The story of the Arabian Nights is actually 350 or 400 stories, depending on how you count them. Many of the stories are stories of impossible love, including the very last story in the whole epic tale, the story of Jasmine and Ahmed. Mary Zimmerman is the Chicago director who adapted the Arabian Nights for the stage. There are two lovers um, who meet in a dream, actually. Uh, the girl has a dream of, of someone, and at the same time, a prince in a faraway place uh, he gives some milk to a dervish who asks him for some milk from a cow he's tending. And in gratitude for this, he describes this beautiful woman who's perfect for him, who happens to be the woman who has had a dream of him. So he goes to the other kingdom. He wanders around. Uh, he's sort of in disguise. He sort of looks like a shepherd because he's actually out of his mind with grief because he can't find her. He's afraid he won't find her. She similarly has fallen ill, and all the doctors of the kingdom are coming in trying to cure her. But nothing will help, and she won't say what the matter is. And then one day her maid comes to her and says, there's a shepherd outside at our gates, and he looks like, and he proceeds to describe him, which is exactly as how he appeared in her dream. And so she runs to her father, who she's never asked anything from before, and begs him to hire this particular shepherd. And he does. And uh, so things come about. They go about. Now, so far, it seems like we're heading on our way to a very happy story. Yeah, but but things get in the way. For one thing, he's disguised as a shepherd, and she's a princess, so there's a conflict already there. Um, she's supposed to stay behind the curtain of the harem, which she doesn't do. And so one day, she decides to take lunch to him. Uh, <laughs> she pretends she's just taking lunch to all the shepherds, but she serves it on silver dishes. And her uncle sees this, her calamitous uncle, who's so full of hatred of the world that all he wants to do is ruin everyone's happiness. And he always stops musicians from playing and stops people from being together, whatever else he could do, because he's so miserable himself. So he runs straight away to his brother, the father, and tells him about this. And the girl gets into a world of trouble, and she's sent behind the curtain of the harem again. And uh, so they're going to actually marry her off to the son of the calamitous uncle, actually. So... Uh, I will read it. The desolate almond, who had been clothed against her will in splendid robes and the gold ornaments of marriage, sat on an elegant couch of gold brocade, a flower upon a bed of flowers, silent as a lily, motionless as an idol. She seemed as one dead among the living. But Jasmine, who had come with the other servants to the bridal of his mistress, gave her hope to drink from a single glance of his eyes. Surely the looks of lovers can say twenty things. When night came and the princess had been led to the marriage chamber, destiny turned a fortunate face to the lovers. Taking advantage of the little moment before her bridegroom should come to her, Almond glided from the chamber in her gold robes and fled to Jasmine. These two delightful children took hands and vanished, more lightly than the dew-wet breeze of morning. Nothing has since been heard of them, or their abiding place. There are few upon this earth worthy of happiness, worthy to take the road which leads to happiness, worthy to draw near the house of happiness. Mary, what do you make of the fact that, you know, there's this long, long pot that goes for pages and pages and pages, and then suddenly they get to this moment, and rather than invent something to happen, the narrator just has them vanish, just suddenly poof, you mm -hmm. know. I guess it maybe demonstrates a kind of faith in the possibility of miracle, or the possibility that there is in fact destiny in who you love, 
and that that place that we're always torn between is this a random event that I've met this person or is this actually the person where it's written somewhere or told somewhere in this case is the other part of myself the ending of this story really manifests that longing that it is divine and that there is destiny Mary Zimmerman teaches at Northwestern University and let's close out this program with a moment from another story in the Arabian Nights Aziz and Aziza another story of impossible love he stands her up on their wedding day after that in her love for him she helps him scheme to get another woman and then she dies for love dying with a poem she says things like, Your careless head upon my heart lay nesting and dreamed another woman while I wept. So dig my grave deep and put these words above. She fears not death, for she is known love. Well, the program was produced today by Elise Spiegel, Julie Snyder, Nancy Updike, and me. Contributing editors Paul Tufjack, Hit, Margie Rocklin, and Consulieri Saraval. Production up from Jorge Just, Sylvia Lemus, and Todd Bachman. Special thanks today to Debbie Mitchell and Kathy Augusta, to Ray Hill at the Prison Show at KPFT Houston. Our story, Mucho Corazon, was produced by Chris Brooks and Michelle Ernsting for the World Views series of first-person narratives from Homeland Productions. The editor was Sandy Tolan. It was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting and Radio Netherlands. If you'd like to buy a cassette of this program, call us here at WBEZ in Chicago, 312-832-3380. Or you know you can listen to most of our programs for free on the Internet at our website, www.thislife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. Funding for our program has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Merrill and Oakley Thorne, and the listeners of WBEZ Chicago. WBEZ Management Oversight by Tori Malatia, who describes managing our show this way. The intensity of the relationship and the intensity of the feelings is far beyond anything that we've ever experienced before. I'm Ira Glass. They never let him out of the building to come to the visitation area. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. PRI Public Radio International.